We're going to start with a segment on the peace of God, and here are the St. Michael singers with Like a River Glorious is God's Perfect Peace. is Minister of Pitlochry Church of Scotland. Today she has a story for us about perfect peace. Several years ago a submarine was being tested and had to remain submerged for many hours and when it returned to the harbour the captain was asked 
How did the terrible storm last night affect you? The officer looked at him in surprise and said, Storm? We didn't even know there was one. The sub had been in radio silence and it had been so far beneath the surface that it reached an area known to sailors as the cushion of the sea. Although the ocean may be whipped up into huge waves by high winds, the waters below are never stirred. And this, I believe, is a perfect picture of the peace that comes from Christ's spirit. The waves of worry, of fear, of heartbreak are stilled by Jesus and sheltered by his love and encouraged by his spirit. His followers are given that perfect peace that only Christ can provide. Mary Haddo, Minister of Pitlochry Church of Scotland there. Now we'll continue, at least indirectly, with the theme of God's peace as Brian Dirksen sings, It is well with my soul.
Adrian Plass has written a book called The Unlocking, published by the Bible Reading Fellowship. They have given us permission to broadcast his recordings, and we hear one of them now. Victims of Sarcasm It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two bandits, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way the chief priests along with the scribes were also mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also taunted him. Shall I tell you something that really infuriates me? When my wife and I are in the car, I don't drive myself, we occasionally encounter a type of driver who will react to any small mistake that might be made with a slow, heavy, pityingly censorious shake of the head. It's just too wearisomely awful, the perpetrator of this ghastly sighing movement seems to be saying, that we mature, capable human beings have got to put up with lesser creatures like you, who certainly should not be allowed on the road and have probably made as much mess of every other department of your life as you have of being in charge of a car. I've always wanted to drag one of these head shakers out of his car, throw him onto the tarmac, kneel on his chest, and force him to tell me at least three areas in which he is totally incompetent, so that I can shake my head censoriously at him. You don't think I'm overreacting, do you? This may sound like trivia, but do you realise that the God who loved us enough to hang bleeding on that piece of wood we call the cross 
got exactly the same head-shaking treatment from those who passed by. He who with one divine, totally competent snap of the fingers could have summoned twelve legions of angels to give the whole world the tarmac treatment, consented to die so that those who mocked his failure could live. Pray with me. Dear Lord, we bring to you a great throng of people who have a basic fear of relationships because they've been seriously injured and handicapped by the scorn and sarcasm of others. Place your hand on those injuries now, Father. I know you don't often change people suddenly into something they are not, but perhaps the healing will begin for them here. Whisper softly to them the wonderful truth that Jesus knows how they feel because he had to put up with it as well. Dear Jesus, thank you. Amen. And that was Adrian Plass with a chapter from his book, The Unlocking. Here now, it's Paul Bolosh with a song co-written with Lenny LeBlanc. It's Above All.
Catherine Scott with I Belong.
Malcolm Geit has written a series of meditations based on the Psalms. Today we hear Malcolm's thoughts on Psalm 14. It's followed by Handel's Concerto Grosso, played by the English Concert, under their conductor Trevor Pinnock. A response to Psalm 14. When heaven's hidden gates are drawn apart and our captivity is ended, we'll rejoice. But now the fool's in charge, and in his heart he only echoes his own emptiness. No God, no vestiges of reverence disturb his vanity. Just weariness and mockery. Just cruel insolence and greed that still consumes the poor like bread. These only seem to move him. Violence is like a drug to him. He cocks his head and speaks his poison words with hissing tongue. And yet we still believe him. Let him dread the day that's coming. It will not be long. The poor have cried and now they have been heard. The fool will fall before their joyful song. Frostrup has a program called Open Book on Radio 4, where she talks to authors about their work. You can hear some of her previous interviews on the Books and Authors podcast on BBC Sounds website. Today we hear Leila Abulela describing her novel, The Kindness of Enemies. 
a novel which takes us on a journey through two very different landscapes, weaving stories of contemporary Scotland and czarist Russia into a fascinating exploration of belonging and identity. The Kindness of Enemies by Leila Abu Leila zooms in on a real-life 19th-century jihadist and hero of the Caucasus, Imam Shamil, who waged a successful war against the invading Russians from his rocky mountain Aoul. He's the subject of narrator Natasha's academic study, and so she's delighted when she discovers that her star student Oz is a direct descendant. Meanwhile, in Abu Leila's parallel story, Shamil kidnaps a Georgian princess in order to broker his own kidnapped son's return from his Russian captors, an act that echoes down the centuries. Like her narrator Natasha, Leila Abu Leila grew up in Khartoum and now lives in Aberdeen, from where she's forged a successful writing career which has seen her three times Orange Prize longlisted and winner of the Kane Prize. She joins me now. Leila, Imam uh, Shamil is the connection between these two stories and he's a completely fascinating character about whom I'd never heard. Uh, tell me a bit more about him. Well, I first uh, read about him in uh, Leslie Blanche's uh, book called The, The Sabres of Paradise. And um, and she tells the story of, of his kidnapping of the princess and, you know, how he united the tribes of the Caucasus to fight against uh, Russian expansion. And um, I've, I've just been fascinating about his character. And also what fascinated me was his Sufism, that he belonged to a Sufi group. And, uh, and so I wanted to write about this parallel between his spirituality and the fact that he was actually fighting. And also to write about an almost correct form of... Of, of jihad that he was uh, fighting to protect his, his villages and at the same time that he did uh, surrender at the end he did acknowledge defeat and he was reconciled to, to to Russia and so I felt that there was a lot that young Muslims nowadays could learn from his story and that uh, you know for all of us he's an inspiring character. You mentioned a correct form of, of jihad is that an attempt in a way to reappropriate the, the language of Islam away from the sort of extremism that's associated with the word jihad now? Yes I, I suppose so I mean it's, it's, it's become a word now which um, uh, which is associated with terrorism and, and, and yet in the Islamic literature it isn't, it is a self-defense it is about uh, the, the weak defending themselves against the strong and it also is associated with um, a kind of spiritual struggle to do good and to sort of overcome one's uh, weaknesses In many ways Shamil's story alone could have filled the whole novel, why did you decide to interweave it with this contemporary tale of an academic who encounters his descendants? Yes, it was Shamil at the beginning and I had already written a radio play about Shamil um, uh, some years ago. Uh, but then I decided to add on the, con the, the contemporary bit because I felt that uh, that that we as, as, as readers nowadays, we need someone to, to act as a bridge for us. And so this character of, of Natasha came to me. And the whole complexity of her character and her own torn identity between being half Russian, half Sudanese, and then being adopted by a, a Scottish uh, stepfather and growing up in, in Scotland. 
And so that story became uh, more alive to me as I was writing. And I remember even in the process of writing that I started to get very excited about the present. Uh, even though mo- actually in terms of word count, most of the novel is actually set in the past and most of the novel tells the story of, of Shamil. But when I was writing about Natasha and the present, I was very much excited about what was happening to her, um, her journey as well. This theme of loss runs throughout the novel. Uh, you've mentioned Natasha's separation from her father, but also with Shamil, the uh, kidnapping of his son. Um, what did you want to explore further about that sense of loss? Well, I felt that um, that somehow uh, being an immigrant parent, uh, you're, in a way, your children growing up in, in the West, it's as if they've been adopted by someone else somehow, uh, by the school, by the society around them. And so they grow a little bit distant from their parents. Uh, and so this made me somehow uh, link that to, to, to Shamil and how he lost his son. And he, his son was, was brought up in, in Russia and he no longer could speak his father's language. He was uh, no longer associated with the traditions of his uh, tribe. And so it this kind of echoed with that. And so with Natasha, she uh, she's no longer feels that she's Sudanese. She, you know, she left Sudan. She no longer feels that she's she's a Muslim. She's detached from all these uh, traditions. And yet there isn't really a substitute. There's a kind of, uh, there's a vacuum. There isn't really a, 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 a something that has substituted something else. And we'll come back to that conversation in a few minutes' time. But meantime, we'll listen to Daniel O'Donnell with his song, Footsteps. Footsteps walking with me Footsteps I cannot see But every move I make And every step I take I know they're there Beside me day by day Through good and bad Through happy and sad Those footsteps won't go away I'll never walk in life alone There'll always be someone there I know he won't let me down He's with me everywhere The special things in life I've done I've been through him and his love I've been blessed in so many ways Thanks to the Lord above Footsteps walking with me Footsteps I cannot see But every move I make and every step I take I know they're there with me They walk with me all the way Beside me day by day Through good and bad Through happy and sad Those footsteps won't go away I think that my life's been planned By the one who's guiding me When I'm led by the hand Someone I can't see I'm not always sure where to go 
sung by Daniel O'Donnell. But now we'll go back to hear more from Mariella Frostrup and Lila Abulela. Did you want this novel to have a political edge? I mean, you must have wanted this novel to have a political edge. I think I, 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 I do, I do, I do. But at the same time, it isn't a specific, you know, message that I'm trying to point out. I'm just trying to show something that's maybe missing from the dialogue. Uh, but at the end of the day, it is a novel. It is about the characters and uh, they are all very uh, real to me. But it's hard to write a novel now about Muslims, which isn't going to be political. I mean, it, it will it will be to some extent political. I wanted to ask that because uh, you've said in the past that you didn't want to be perceived as a, as a political writer. And yet I wonder now if that is entirely impossible and you've had to accept that that baggage in a way comes with it for you at the moment. I think it does. It does come. And I think that, that um, what is important maybe is not, not is while I'm writing that I'm not feeling that I'm looking over my shoulder, that I'm not feeling, you know, I have to um, make this particular point or, you know, I have to defend this or that, that I, it, it should all be natural. It, it should all come naturally as part of, of the story. I think that that's where the, 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 the work is. But there is a sense in in the book uh, of wanting to challenge perceived ideas of the Islamic faith, uh, you know, relating back to Shamil's uh, relationship with Sufism and so on, that that's very much on your agenda, as it were. Yes, but at the same time, um, it's also challenging, um, it is challenging Western ideas, but it's also challenging Muslims' ideas because a lot of Muslims, for example, the um, the kind of um, Islam in Saudi Arabia, for example, is very anti-Sufism, is very opposed to Sufism. And yet, uh, as as it says very much at the end of the book, when Shamil went to, to Saudi Arabia, he was received very warmly. And you think, well, that wouldn't be the case nowadays, you know, because there's been a change also in, in the way um, Islam is interpreted in, in, in the Muslim world. Uh, these are very pertinent themes in our currently very fractured world. Is there a sense as a novelist that you can restore humanity to, to headlines? Yes, I mean this is what fiction does. I mean it 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 allows us to 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 write about these things or to talk about or to be in these places which the headlines doesn't. And since I came to to Britain, I mean since I came here as an immigrant myself, 
uh, I have been helped to to understand life in Britain by reading fiction, by reading British writers and Scottish writers. And that's how, to me, that was the way I kind of made my way around here. So I, I think it could work the other way around as well. Natasha's um, experience in some ways echoes your own. I know that you went back uh, when your father was ill and you returned to, to, to Sudan and you have a passage at quite a large section of the book where, where Natasha does likewise. And she has this sense all the time of something missing, of something uh, that she's lost. Um, and she's very taken, I think, with this idea of Oz and Malik's lineage to Imam Shamil. But do you think that that's something we all long for, yourself included, that, that sense of anchoring? I think so, yeah. I think we, we do. I mean, my life is very different from hers in that I lived in Sudan until I was in my mid-twenties uh, and that I'm actually quite very, uh, quite attached to, 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 to Sudan. Uh, maybe I see her more uh, as I see my, my children who, who, who grew up in, in the UK and they don't have a sense of, of Sudan as their homeland, maybe. Uh, so I see that more in them, of course, because they haven't lived in Sudan. For To, to them, it's just a, a place that their parents have left. Um, and so I, that's maybe me. That's how when I was writing her, maybe I was more influenced by my children rather than by, by myself. Yeah. I suppose in some ways it's it's a strange time to to be a Muslim writer because as we've we've talked about there is this uh, sense of an extra responsibility to be speaking not for yourself but for a broader uh, constituency in a way but also it must be a great time to be a Muslim writer because uh, there's a a huge interest perhaps in not only the subject matter but the themes that you're writing about on a much broader level do you feel that uh, yes but i'm cautious at the same time because uh, because you don't want to be as a writer you I, I feel that every writer should have their own integrity and they shouldn't be responding to the interest. You know, they, they should be um, uh, writing what they feel is, is, is sincere. So it's, it's, it's knowing that you're going to be read, but at the same time, you know, um, not sort of uh, looking at, over your shoulder every two minutes. So it's, it's a bit of a balance trying to keep the two th things together. But, you know, I am, I am happy that there is more interest. And I was just, uh, um, I was just thinking the other day how my, I, my first novel, the, the, the translator, it, 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 it struggled to get published, but now it's still in print for, you know, for 19 years now, it's almost. So it's, um, it was ahead of its time. And I think that now slowly, slowly, I'm finding more readers. Yeah. Thank you very much, Leila Abu Leila, and her novel, The Kindness of Enemies, is published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. The Kindness of Enemies, an intriguing paradox in the title there. Mariella Frostrup was talking to Leila Abu Leila, who is from Sudan and now lives in Aberdeen. Here's Charlie Lansborough with one of his best loved songs, My Forever Friend. Everybody needs a little help sometimes No one stands alone Makes no difference if you're just a child like me Or a king upon the throne For there are no exceptions 
all stand in the line Everybody needs a friend Let me tell you of mine He's my forever friend Amarachi and thou art worthy, O Lord. (laughs) 